You're listening to another episode of the Zag Erkasob here, continuing our social distancing pod mini series, catching up with folks who are hunkering down in these strange times that we're in. We're joined by Ebony today, a 2011 Chicago fellow. It's always fun to talk to folks from the old school NLC world. We'll catch up with her, see what she's up to. So let's get to it. All right, 2011 fellow, what do you remember about your experience? How did you even hear about it in the first place? Oh, you know, I think I heard about it through my job at the time. I was working for Public Allies, and someone had reached out because the chapter was just um, starting up, and they had reached out to us just to get the word out, to talk to our core members at the time. And I was like, hey, this seems interesting. I'm going to keep it to myself and apply. Um, so, yeah, that's that's how it all started. And do you still keep in touch with any of that? crew or everyone kind of scattered to the winds now? I do. It's actually really interesting. I'm working pretty closely on an emergency cash transfer and some general cash transfer stuff with another 2011 alum, Harish Patel. And so he and I now talk probably three times a day um, mm, wow. and then still have some relationships with some others. Yeah, that's a good sign. Well, listen, we were chatting before we started recording. You shared with me that you work from home all the time, and now you have some company, people working from home. Uh, give give folks a little bit of insight of what you do when you're working from home. Sure. So I run the Chicago site for an organization called the Family Independence Initiative. We are focused on um, really getting the message out about the power of cash transfers plus social capital and what that can do to help eliminate poverty in our country. So we run a... Um, a pilot on our own, and then at the same time, take the data and the research that we have to advocate for broader cash transfers, um, programs and policies across the city, county, state, uh, and even nationally. So it's really fun work. Very cool stuff. Yeah. So what's the, what's the short explanation for what a, a cash transfer is exactly? Yeah. So a cash transfer is um, really what it sounds like. It is giving the people cash rather than directing it to um, institutions to develop more programs and services. So cash is literally one entity taking it and directing it directly to an individual or a household or family. Well, so that's definitely timely now, right? You're seeing in the political discussion about how to support folks through these tough economic times with the virus of UBI conversations, or should we just give people money for rent? Like, is it, you know, it's a very different conversation all of a sudden. What are your thoughts or take on all the things that are being discussed right now? So I spent the past 72 hours deep in discussions with some some colleagues, including Harish um, and some others, to talk about Chicago and our state uh, creating an emergency fund to respond to the sudden loss of income that people are experiencing. Um, so the timing, you know, could not be better to prove why this stuff is necessary. As I'm sure you and a lot of folks listening know, there's so much data that talks about most Americans don't have $400 to get them through an emergency. Um, we all know that experiencing a financial shock leads to wealth stripping. Um, it leads to being deeper entrenched into debt, making it harder to close those racial wealth gaps that exist in our country. And so I think the time is really right for America to catch up with what the international community has known and, and done for the last 25 years. So then folks who argue against this idea at this point, because I think you're right, there's so many examples across the world of this being a really smart move for so many reasons. When people argue against it, what kind of arguments are they making? You know, so you hear a lot of um, arguments against it that are really rooted, to be honest, in bias and a lot of tropes that we have about low-income folks and about people who struggle. I often, I couldn't tell you how many times I hear, well, if you give people money, they're going to stop working. 
if you give people money, they're going to spend it frivolously because they don't understand financial management and budgeting. And none of that stuff is true, right? Like if you talk to somebody who's broke, that's probably going to be the best budgeter you ever met in your life. (laughs) I'm the child of a single mom who had four girls um, and she could budget her butt off. Right. But she was also struggling. So she didn't she didn't need a class to teach her how to budget. What she needed was additional cash. So she didn't have to work two, three jobs all the time. Um, and then the work that we do at FII, we collect data from our families. We, we call them our, our members and our partners because they allow us to learn how cash is making a difference from them. And so the data we've collected over the past 18 years shows that when you give our folks cash, they actually go out and do more work. They start small businesses. They elevate their side hustles. They enroll in school. Um, they, they do, you see an increase in activity, not a decrease. And so I'm always challenging people to um, check their biases and to really think about where some of that hesitation comes from. And nine times out of 10, it's rooted in what we think about the poor. So when you're trying to think about groups that would support this, do you target government aid? agencies more do you target philanthropy like where do you feel like would be the the earliest proof points that if you could get a lot of examples of this working you could convince even more folks to jump on board so that's a great question we have really uh increased our focus on government adoption because like i said fii alone has been working in this country about 18 years on the cash transfer movement and so we've put a lot of energy and effort into trying to bring philanthropy along but what we've realized is that until government really gets in the game, um, you are not going to see the type of broad scale adoption that we need and want. And I think the current COVID-19 um, pandemic that we're experiencing is a great example of that because government has not created the infrastructures to get cash directly to people uh, rapidly. We're now going to be faced with an economic impact that's going to be felt for a really long time in our country. and. That is why for us, you know, like I said, I spent the last 72 hours in so many conversations with city government and other folks, really getting them to understand that the time is now if we don't want these problems to become exacerbated. Additionally, philanthropy um, also needs to do a whole lot more with uh, reducing some of the restrictions that they put on the, the dollars that they give out. We have some wonderful institutions where the staff gets it right. They understand that, yes, you can trust families. You can families know what's best for them. It's, you should take a strength-based approach. But what the challenge we're facing is that, that their boards are not there. They're still really entrenched in that social service model where we have to give our dollars to an institution that's going to program and service folks out of poverty. When we've known since the war on poverty began that that approach just doesn't work. Um, so I say that all all to say that it's going to take both. But I. I think that when government gets on board, a lot of the other dominoes will fall in line. When we come back, I want to ask you a little bit about some of the mechanisms to, to deliver this, this this cash and and how that might work. Thanks for listening to this episode of Zach, everyone. We'll be right back. Yeah, so the, the phrase cash transfer, like you're, I think my, my first mental image is someone is literally handing you cash, but that's probably not true in actuality. So when you think of the mechanisms to deliver this infusion of money to folks, is it something we should think about in terms like Venmo or the Cash App? Is it something different, more akin to direct deposit? Like, How does it actually work in principle? So for us and a lot of the other folks who are doing this in our country, it works using all of those mechanisms. 
we have a technology platform called Up Together that has a built-in has that has um, a payment platform built into through it to it, and it's powered by Stripe. Um, other institutions, so like the Magnolia Mothers Trust in Mississippi, which is a really cool um, initiative in its second year, they are funding um, Black mothers who live in low-income housing and giving them a thousand dollars a month for um, 12 months. Magnolia Mothers Trust also relies on um, ACH and other electronic transfers. If someone is unbanked, there is the ability to cut them a physically check, cut them a physical check. Um, but checks cost more money. So we try to connect our our families and our members to institutions um, that can help them become banked and not be impacted by some of the predatory prepaid cards that are out there. Um, but if that is what a family is using, that is totally linkable. I've got families that have their dollars go to PayPal, Cash App, uh, Venmo. As long as it's got a routing and account account number, we can send it there. Um, in New York, there is a pilot being scoped out that'll be launching fairly soon that's going to be focused on um, homeless young adults, so 18 to 26. And that's something that they're grappling with right now because it's a population that tends to be unbanked um, in the traditional sense. And so they're designing their model to be really, really mobile friendly and to interface really easily with the cash apps and the Venmos. And that's probably what they're going to lead with because that's what their uh, target population is using already. There's a ton of data that actually illustrates the cash transfers are less expensive than other interventions. The Aspen Institute and Give Directly are really great resources to kind of review data, um, domestic data. But internationally, you'll see that even the World Bank has put out so many studies, so many white papers on this. Um, so yeah, it's actually cheaper in so many cases to just give the money directly to families because you don't have the same overhead costs. So here in Chicago, I am a team of one um, and I, I work from home. I don't need an office downtown. I don't need a, ten, a team of 10 um, because we are assuming that families know best for themselves and all they need is the dollars. And so it doesn't take 10 of me to put dollars into their hands it doesn't take the cost of rent um, to make that happen. We utilize technology to um, push those dollars out. Um, the other thing that I think is is really interesting when you when folks make the argument about cost and how much money you have to give people um, is one, nobody has figured out what the right amount is, right? But what we do know is that anything is better than nothing, one, and that even cases where folks are receiving $50 a month over a year or two years makes a difference because that $50 is a light bill. And then the money, you know, that prevents you from experiencing that utility shut off. Um, and we all know that like, when you have a utility shut off, if you have kids in the home, you then have issues of can they do their homework? Can they get a good night's sleep because it's warm in the house? So that $50 helps people meet basic needs that they wouldn't otherwise be able to, to meet. Um, the other thing I wanna say about it really quickly is that even these small dollar amounts, so we invest $3,200 over 24 months. What we see so many of our families do is use that small pool of money to mitigate the cliff effect. And so the cliff effect is that thing where you might be on public benefits and you do everything that, the, that your caseworker and everybody else tells you to do, um, and you get a job and you do well at that job and you get a dollar an hour or $2 an hour raise. That raise then pushes you out of your eligibility for that childcare subsidy that you might have been getting. Um, so I, I have a number of families that use it to subsidize what they lost in childcare subsidies, so that they don't have to pull their kids out of a school that they were really confident in um, and that was doing great things for their kiddo. And they don't have to now say no 
to taking that $2 promotion that gets them a little bit closer to self, uh, self-sufficiency where they want to go. Um, and so I think cash transfers are a really important part of how, as a country, we manage those cliff effects. Um, and we build an, an off-ramp for families so that they don't experience what happens to 50% of families, which is they wind up right back on benefits within five years. Yeah. Listen, super timely. I'm so glad we got to connect with you. And thanks for, for spreading the word. And we'll put a little bit more information about the work that you're doing in the info to this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone. And make sure to download and subscribe so you can catch all of the social distancing mini-series Zag episodes that will be dropping this week. We're trying to get a bunch since so many folks are working from home. And we'll have maybe a little bit of extra time to listen and to connect virtually with folks. So until we see you again in person, enjoy the Zags. Take care.